Welcome to CII's podcast, The Voice of Corporate Governance. While this podcast is open to the public, the majority of our work is only accessible to current CII member organizations. If you would like information on becoming a member of CII, please visit our website at cii.org or contact our Director of Membership, Melissa Fader, with her email, melissa at cii.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professors Gladriel and Jared Shobe of Brigham Young University Law School. They are the co-authors of a recent research paper entitled The Dual Class Spectrum. Welcome, Professors. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Yes, thanks for inviting us to discuss this topic. We always hope that our research can be relevant and helpful outside of the academic community, you know, in the real world, and we're excited to discuss this with you today. So, professors, what motivated you to write a paper about dual-class companies, and how and why do single-class companies use contracts to replicate dual-class companies? Yes, as you know, dual-class structures have always been controversial, And what motivated us to write this paper is that we saw that scholars and practitioners treat the question of whether a company is dual class as a binary one. On the one hand, they treat a company as dual class if the company has more than one class of common stock and at least one class provides certain shareholders disproportionate voting rights. Uh, For example, a company would be treated as dual class if it had two classes of stock, one of which granted one vote per share and the other which granted 10 votes per share. But in contrast, a company with only a single class of common stock is never treated as dual class because it's assumed that the shareholders are treated equally. However, in practice and through our research, we saw that this distinction between single and dual class companies fails to account for the fact that many nominally single class companies grant control rights and other special rights to insiders by contract. Our paper has a data set which analyzes approximately 1,700 public companies, and it shows that a third of those companies that went public from 2004 to 2020 granted at least one special contractual right to insider shareholders. Um, In some cases, these contractual rights function like minority protection rights, but in many cases, the contractual rights mimic traditional dual-class structures by granting board control to insiders. Our data set shows that about 17% of the companies we looked at granted minority insider shareholders control over the board at the time of the IPO. Um, In some cases, the contractual rights granted through contract far exceeded the rights shareholders could obtain through a traditional dual class structure. For example, we show that insiders can receive contractual rights that go far beyond board control, uh, such as approving or disapproving major decisions like whether to sell the company or amend foundational corporate documents. And therefore, our paper and our data set shows that companies can use contracts to turn what appears on the surface to be a single class company into what is essentially what we call a de facto dual class company. And based on this evidence, we conclude that the binary distinction between dual class and single class companies misses the fact that dual class is actually a spectrum with varying degrees of control and economic rights running to certain insider shareholders. Professors, your paper discusses the Carlisle Group as an example of a de facto dual class company. 
Can you provide some background and your analysis of the Carlisle Group's capital structure? Yeah, so Carlisle is an interesting example. So they didn't show up in our sample because uh, they made this change after their IPO and we were looking at companies at IPO. But it gave us a window into the way these companies think uh, because uh, they had to publicly disclose why they were doing this change. And so recently what they did is they went from having a traditional dual class structure uh, which gave its historic founders disproportionate voting rights uh, to control the company. And they converted to a typical single-class company with one vote per share. Uh, but in a press release, Carlisle said the primary reason why they were doing this was because there were trillions of dollars of passive index funds that they were missing out on because of their dual-class structure and that they anticipated being included in these index funds uh, with a single-class structure. Uh, but at the same time, they converted to this single-class structure. Uh, they also entered into a stockholders agreement with the founders that gave the founders rights to nominate board members and board committee members. And also, they entered into a, an, an irrevocable proxy with the employees of the company that required the employees of the company to give their voting rights to the founders. And so, in effect, the founders were able to convert the company into a nominally single-class structure, which qualified for index inclusion, uh, even though in reality, it mimicked the previous dual-class structure because the same people had full control of the company and control disproportionate to their ownership after the, the conversion. Uh, and so Carlisle is one of the few companies that's actually come out and said that they were doing it for this reason. But we think it's indicative of, of a move towards granting rights to insiders in a way that's less likely to be recognized and punished by the market. Professor, your paper recommends that the Securities and Exchange Commission require companies that grant control rights to insiders to improve the disclosures of those rights in their SEC filings. Can you describe your proposed disclosure requirement and why you believe it's necessary? Yes, because we conclude that dual class is a spectrum it's difficult to come up with concrete policy recommendations, but it does make sense to treat like things alike. And we think that disclosure requirements and restrictions imposed on traditional dual-class companies should be extended to companies that are substantively dual-class, especially if they're what we call de facto dual-class or grant even more rights uh, than companies could grant if they were a traditional dual-class structure. For example, if a company uses a traditional dual-class structure, the existence of that dual-class structure is listed on the first page of a company's prospectus, so it's prominently displayed. In contrast, if a nominally single-class company grants rights, including majority control rights by contract, that information is buried deep in a prospectus and through separate contracts, which creates salience and transparency issues for shareholders. Therefore, one of our suggestions is to require companies that grant insiders control rights by contract to more prominently disclose those rights. For example, regulators could require companies that describe contractual rights to include those rights in the description of capital stock because that's where companies describe the economic and voting rights of the shareholders. Since the contractual rights granted to insiders effectively override many of the control rights described in that section in the description of capital stock, disclosing the insiders' special contractual rights alongside the rights that they and the public shareholders receive through their ownership of the company's stock would allow public shareholders to more easily understand how control is allocated. Professors, your paper notes that single-class companies that are in substance dual-class companies because of 
board nomination rights almost always include sunset provisions that eventually eliminate those rights. As you know, many market experts view sunset provisions as an effective means of protecting long-term investors from the harm caused by dual-class companies. In that regard, what are your views on a draft bill currently before the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services that would require that the stock exchanges revise their listing standards so that IPOs with dual-class structures sunset those structures in seven years or less? So I would say, first of all, the sunsets that we found in our sample are a little different in that they're not time-based. They were almost always ownership-based. So as the founders sell shares, their contractual control rights often decrease on a sliding scale uh, because the control rights, uh, generally they'll have a range of, you know, as long as they own 25%, they might control the entire board. But once it goes below that, they still continue to have uh, disproportionate control rights. And so, um, so they don't necessarily have to sunset at all. Um, and often they, to- they only totally go away once the founder's ownership percentages are very small, maybe as low as 5%. Um, but our paper also, I think, demonstrates why a straightforward proposal like just a sunset after seven years uh, might not work as well as, as we might hope, uh, just because uh, it's only directed at dual-class companies that are the traditional dual-class uh, structures. But as we show, companies can achieve the same thing in a single class structure by using a web of contractual rights that wouldn't be captured by the bill. Uh, and in fact, if the bill were enacted, we think it might actually push companies to do more of what we describe uh, and maybe even just from the outset, never be a dual class company and just use contracts from the beginning and then never be captured by the bill. And so you could end up with a game of whack-a-mole where uh, companies are are responding to this bill by just not never doing a traditional dual class company in the first place. And that might even be more concerning if if you think that the the salience issues that we raise are are real, then maybe it's worse if we're pushing people uh, into that. But I I think the proposed bill is a good start. I think that, um, but any legislative solution that's gonna be really successful in the long run is probably gonna have to have more nuance and address the full variety of ways that insiders keep disproportionate control beyond just typical dual class structures. Now, that's obviously a lot harder to do uh, than to write a straightforward bill that requires a sunset in the dual class context. Um, And it would require some thinking about what are the types of control that we are and aren't okay with. Uh, But that's the main point of our paper, really, is that dual class comes in a variety of forms. It's more prevalent and complex than people realize. And what we need to start doing is is really grappling with the full complexity, the ways that insiders keep disproportionate control rights, and that really the market and investors and researchers and regulators uh, need to catch up with the the full uh, sophistication of the ways insiders are keeping control of their companies. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank Professors Gladriel and Jared Schaub of Brigham Young University Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.